With increasing regulatory pressure being applied from all angles towards the global biopharma sector, Washington, D.C.'s Biotechnology Innovation Organization, or BIO, sits at the center of the action and the heat. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking with Rachel King, the interim CEO of BIO, whom is tasked with steering the organization through the increasingly stormy political waters of the D.C. drug pricing debates. Rachel, it's truly a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to be here. We've had a very good relationship working with BIO, and it's the first opportunity we've had to sit down. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me. So you took the helm at BIO in October of last year, literally three days before the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. So a really critical time, and you really got thrown right in it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. What, what did you mm-hmm. see were your first priorities, given what happened? Well, so the organization had been through a lot of changes over that period of time before I got here. We had had um, a leadership transition. There had been, of course, the pandemic. Bio had had to have a layoff, unfortunately, as a result of the pandemic, in addition to everything that was going on outside of the of the organization. So the first priority was really to try to work to stabilize the, uh, the organization, to try to refocus on the things that Bio is so good at doing, which is advocating in support of innovation and, and in support of affordable access. And the team here is great, and that's really the, uh, that was the biggest appeal to me in taking, the, in taking this job, but really to kind of get, get us back to our basics and to really enable the team to do what they do so well. Did you have any second thoughts when you saw everything that was going on? Um, you know, it's a, it's been a it's been a just a wonderful, uh, exciting challenge and it's an certainly opportunity. Exciting. And um, you know, I, I think you may know that I had uh, I had retired about a year before from having run a biotechnology company. Yeah. And when I was asked if I would take this on, it was actually one of the few things that I would consider unretiring for. Yeah. Because I knew the organization so well, I knew the team. And I feel so committed to the mission of what Bio is trying to accomplish that it was really an exciting opportunity actually to step into. And you're a known mm-hmm. commodity to the organization. Mm-hmm. You are mm-hmm. the chair of the board. Obviously, you've worked as a VC. You both mm-hmm. co-founded and were the CEO mm-hmm. of Glycomimetics, senior VP at, at Novartis. You are someone who's incredibly experienced on many mm-hmm. aspects of the biopharma sector. Mm-hmm. Given your experiences, what concerns you most both at a macro level about the current aggressive tenor that's being taken regulatorily against your sector, as well as specifically about some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. As you point out, I have lived through a lot of different aspects of the cycle of, uh, of biotechnology and do have kind of the long-term perspective and a deep appreciation for the impact that the biotech ecosystem has on the ability of particularly smaller companies to to finance themselves and thereby to develop new products. I care deeply about the strength of that ecosystem, and that's where the concerns about the IRA come in. And I know we want to talk more about that yeah. in detail. I do want to say something, though, about why that ecosystem is so important. I have sat across the table many times in the context of raising money for my company, Glycomimetics, when I was the CEO there, sat across the table from venture capitalists who could put money into my company, could put money into other biotech companies, could put money into developing a new app, could put money into a new software platform, and they're going to put their money into where they think they can make the best return. Right. And so I think it's critically important for us as a society to be thinking about where we want to incentivize investment and to also be cautious about where we might be disincentivizing investment. These decisions to, to invest or to start companies, to grow companies, these are not made in a vacuum. They're made in the, in a context of an entire environment. And so I think it's very important to think about 
what we do from a policy perspective in terms of impact on that environment. And that's where we come to something like, like IRA, which is, that yes, as you point out, there are a number of areas where we do have concerns. Bio sponsored our analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act, which we released a month ago at the International Conference in Boston. What surprised us was the realization of how IRA creates such material penalties and uncertainties in the development, particularly in orphan oncology. Given your experience as someone who's worked on all sides of the balance sheet from venture capital through big pharma, how important has the accelerated approval been? It's been critical. And and critical, I, I want to emphasize, to companies and to patients. Yes. Um, because... The, uh, you know, companies make decisions about where they're going to develop drugs based on a number of factors, including, for example, where the biology leads them, where the biology makes sense, but including also what is feasible from a development standpoint. And the feasibility question is critical because certain indications, certain clinical indications are going to take substantial investments in money and time and risk to the point where a smaller company, or for that matter, a larger company, may feel it's simply not worth the investment or not worth the risk. So the accelerated approval pathway, which gives an earlier look, a a meaningful earlier look at clinical data, has been critical to going after these, uh, these indications. And the way it's been used, as you know, which has been quite successful, is that many companies will go initially into one uh, orphan indication, for example, may learn something in that orphan indication through an accelerated approval uh, process that then they can apply to another indication. They may learn, for example, in ovarian cancer that they may be hitting a biomarker that could be relevant, for example, in liver cancer, and then they could advance into, into liver cancer, another orphan indication. So often we see progression from one orphan indication to another, and perhaps eventually to a large market indication like, say, lung cancer, but perhaps not. Right. Perhaps a, a drug or a company may stay in, that, in those smaller indications. It's critical, though, to be able to use those small indications as pathways to understand how a drug is working, to continue to build a safety database, and to then learn how we might diversify development from there. It's also really important that, that those smaller indications are more feasible to finance. Some people may not like to consider financing as they think about public policy, but it's, it's critically relevant. I can tell you that if you can't raise money to do a particular clinical trial, you're not going to be able to proceed to, to get it done. So we need to think about how we incentivize the ability to invest in innovation. And the accelerated approval pathway has been one pathway that's been very important in those particularly uh, orphan indications. The IRA then, because the clock starts ticking the moment you come in. Essentially what you're doing is you're trading that orphan revenue for peak sales, which may occur 12, 13, 14 years down the road. You lose those now because you're essentially swapping that for an orphan indication. If you're now looking at investable opportunities in the biopharma sector, if you're looking at startup companies, what are you doing when you look at say, a targeted small molecule orphan oncology product. Are you second-guessing that then? Are you probably wondering if that's going to be viable? I think people probably are. I mean, I'm not in that VC space sure. right now, but, I, but I, would say, I would say that from what I've heard from colleagues in the industry, people are very much looking at the impact that, that these IRA disincentives are, are creating. Not only in that, as you say, the clock starts sooner, but that the orphan exemption is limited to one orphan indication. Right. And I think... That is a terrible aspect of the IRA, that um, that you cannot go from one orphan indication freely 
from a, an innovation standpoint freely to other orphan indications that could follow. You're going to be more constrained in the decision-making around taking on those other indications that might make good medical or biological sense, but that may no longer make economic sense. So I think that's a critical element for us to consider trying to modify, actually. When we looked at the accelerated approvals for bio in the study we released last year in San Diego at the conference, you had a a statistically significant positive return on investment the more indications you had. It was an insurance that you were going to be able to continue your development. It's pretty risky if you're only out there with one indication. The fact that we're limiting that ability is certainly going to have a huge amount of impact on the willingness for companies to develop this. And we're hearing this. I mean, we are hearing this. Are you hearing this too? I, I am too. And I, and I certainly agree. As I said, I think that one of the, what I hope is that we'll be able to go forward and make modifications to the IRA. I, I think in the, in the very near term, it's going to be hard to overturn the, the bill. I mean, obviously it's a signature legislative accomplishment of the current administration, and there were some good things in it as well. So what I'm hoping is that, as with many pieces of legislation, there'll be opportunities to improve it going forward in, in ways that continue to achieve the objectives of both supporting innovation and and ensuring affordable access. And one of the critical areas that I think we may be able to target is this, this uh, orphan exemption. We've been hearing from both sides of the aisle that they were just unaware of these penalties that have been created. I, I don't think people had thought this through before they were passed, and they're kind of surprised about the disincentives that have been created in an area where we've had so much success, which is in previously incurable cancers. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. Are you hearing that as well, that there is sort of quietly some admission that maybe there's a bridge too far here? Yes, I think that is the case. And it's not unusual for that to happen over time with major pieces of legislation. I think it's not its not only that people may not have thought through the consequences, but it's simply that these are very complex, sometimes very complex issues, very complex pieces of legislation, a lot of unintended consequences, a lot of pressure in real time as legislation is going through. So I think the fact that we need to make improvements is not an unusual thing from a legislative perspective. And I'm glad to hear, as we have also started to hear, that some members of Congress are open to considering some changes that, again, would continue to support the shared objectives that we have of both supporting innovation and ensuring affordable access to patients. Obviously, we're, we're dwelling a lot on certain aspects of the bill that are extremely difficult. But the out-of-pocket cap for $2,000 that's fantastic. And a lot yep, of us exactly. who've been here have been saying, you know, this is not a drug pricing problem. This is a out-of-pocket donut hole problem within Absolutely. the construct of the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefited as it was designed in 2004. That's a good fix. And we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater with some of this stuff. I mean, there is some good stuff in the bill. The reality is, though, there are some huge penalties that have been created that have been overlooked. In the study we just did for you folks that we released last month, we calculated that 40 companies impacted by the IRA are going to be losing, or at least there's going to be pulled out, $80 billion a year of free cash flow. When you're sucking $80 billion out of the ecosystem with your experience, what would you do? Let me just first affirm what you're saying by responding that... Companies have been investing substantial portions of their revenue in to, into R&D, into new drug development. And if there are significant decreases in revenue, yeah. one would expect there to be significant decreases also in investment. So it's a straightforward point to be made that it's just not possible to retain 
high levels of investment in an environment of decreasing revenue. That's just not possible. I think your report was very helpful in providing some tangible data around what makes sense intuitively when you when you think about it, what you would do in a declining revenue situation. The problem is, from the individual investment standpoint, and a lot of the people in the Congress have pointed this out, yeah, but at nine years, your forward-looking cash flow at the individual investment level, you know, you've written that down, so at year nine, it doesn't matter. And our, our answer is, yeah, that's true at the individual investment level, but it's still going to fail 90% of the time, and you're cutting... of that revenue. So you're going to have less of those investments to make. So your individual investment looks okay. But the fact is you're going to have less money to make those investments. Less money in the system as it were. The pie gets smaller. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And this gets to questions, you know, just to, to broaden it out a little bit, you know, questions about what do we want to incentivize as a country? And what are the critical aspects of our economy that we think we really need to retain and strengthen and grow? And I think if we think of it that way and if we recognize how how much of a of a strategic asset the bioscience uh, biopharma industry is then we've got to be concerned about diminishing its capacity when you look back at what happened in the pandemic i think it's it's just amazing what the industry accomplished and we accomplished it because there was great public private partnership in operation warp speed and the industry was strong and ready to respond. And when you cut through everything that happened over the past couple of years and all the vaccine development that took place all around the world, and you look at the, the, the three vaccines that are likely to be there this fall, which is going to be our first sort of non-pandemic COVID season, they're from Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax, three American-based companies. Yeah. Um, our industry was so strong and ready, um, and, and we, we really have to, I think, reflect on things like the IRA in the context of recognizing the strategic national interest in maintaining a strong and robust industry. We've really got to do that. And I think when we start chipping away at the industry by things like the IRA that diminish the capacity to continue to invest, diminish the capacity to invest in long-term projects, some of which may be platform technologies, some of which may not pan out because they are uh, very risky. We're putting at risk what is really, I think, a a star in our armamentarium. I mean, it's just a great national asset. If you look at where Europe was in 1980, uh, according to work by Arthur Damrich at Harvard, Europe was producing 60% of global pharmaceuticals. We're starting working on a project now on the general pharmaceutical legislation that's been proposed by the European Commission. We've got the 363 approved FDA therapeutics that have come through over the last 10 years, the type 1 approvals. Let's look at those drugs that have been approved and discovered in Europe. We have all the chain of custody, so we can look at the IP. Of that 363, we came up for drugs that were originated and then approved by European companies. We found 17. 17. We said, well, that's, that's not a lot, <laughs> so maybe yeah. we better fold this back. Let's just look at origination. We found 53, right around 15%. There's an enormous cost to the economic stability of Europe in their pharmaceutical sector right now, and it seems like we're importing European-style regulation. Are you concerned that we're just going to start wholesale importing European HTA, European price controls, clawback regimes? Are you concerned that that's where this is going? Yes, I am concerned. I think we've, um, you know, in some ways the um, the clinical development uh, ecosystem is actually a global ecosystem, right? We do trials all over the world. But um, because of the different pricing regimes in different countries, they, there are 
certain countries that are effectively uh, carrying the freight more yeah. uh, for the rest of the world, and the United States is one of them. I think, in, in particularly the United States is doing that. And I am concerned that we start to take for granted the benefits that we've been able to, that have accrued to our society as a result of the investments that have taken place over the previous decades in the United States. Sometimes, you know, we talk to people about impact on innovation, and we feel that they may they may think that innovation is inevitable or, or that um, investing in early stage research is necessarily going to lead to the development of drugs, which is not the case um, because between the early stage research and the drug is many years of expensive development <laughs> at, at a great deal of risk. So and, and 20, um, it's 20 years. Often. Yeah, it's yeah. a long it's a long development cycle. So we do have to continue to remind our policymakers and the public that innovation is not something to be taken for granted, that innovation in this sector is very expensive, it takes a very long time, and we need as a society, as I said a moment ago, we need to think carefully about what we want to incentivize. If we care about incentivizing ongoing innovation in this industry, then we need to have policies in place that will do that. We're not finished curing disease. You no, know, we're, you know, not. we're not finished with cancer. We're not finished with Alzheimer's disease, with Parkinson's, with many diseases that you could, that you could mention. And everybody agrees with that, right? And so given that we're not finished, we need to continue to incentivize um, the ongoing development. I mean, this leads to another aspect of, of IRA that I'm concerned about, which is this distinction between small molecules yeah, nine and, and 13, large molecules. Exactly. Yeah, and um, it's interesting, you know, I think a lot of the, I've, I've spoken with a number of people who are very committed to that nine versus 13 difference at the same time that they are talking about the importance of developing drugs for things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and neurological diseases, which could, in many cases, potentially benefit more from a small molecule drug approach than a large molecule drug, drug approach. And why would we disincentivize a lengthy, expensive clinical trial program in Alzheimer's disease just because of its underlying technology. It doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, and a lot of that goes back to a lot of the discussions that occurred during the Affordable Care Act, where you had, you know, oh, these are biologics, so they need more time in these context of these negotiations around the ACA. And so, unfortunately, with the rhetoric that was thrown around back then, well, small molecules are easier, large molecules are hard, that's sort of gotten hardwired in the legislative language going back to the ACA, unfortunately. If you look in, say, California in, in the San Diego cluster, you have a CEO that just won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. I mean, running a good old-fashioned medicinal chemistry company. Jeff Yonker at Belhara Therapeutics just cut a $2 billion deal with Roche. Bad timing, but a small molecule company. You know, there's great evolution in medicinal chemistry. Sweden right now, Afibodies, sort of 120th size of the monoclonal antibody. Are those going to get pegged a large molecule or a small molecule? Well, I guarantee when they file their application, they're going to start making an argument that Afibodies are large molecules if this doesn't get changed. It's a real problem. Yeah, it's a real problem. It is. Well, and, and part of it is, that I think, a misunderstanding that while I might acknowledge that in some cases the chemistry might be simpler, that does not mean that the drug development is simpler. Because, it, again, taking the example of Alzheimer's disease, if you had a, a program in Alzheimer's disease, it would probably be very large, very long, very risky, and not at all a, quote, easy program to implement. You could have an easier program 
with a large molecule drug if the clinical path were more straightforward in a more targeted indication. So we cannot assume that more straightforward chemistry equates to more straightforward drug development. It doesn't make sense to provide a disincentive based on the specific technology for that reason. And the other problem with Alzheimer's, they're huge trials, 2,000, 3,000 people, they're outcomes trials. Um, Very long. Yeah, the work we did on Alzheimer's, I mean, these are four or five billion dollar clinical trials. Uh, so this idea that clinical trials, you can do it for, you know, half a million dollars and you, or you can do it with a bucket of balls and, you know, basically a couple McDonald's coupons. I mean, some of the rhetoric around this stuff is insane. Yes. Alzheimer's still has a failure rate. We've had one approval now for an actual therapeutic. It still has a failure rate over 98%. Yes. Picking up on that and some of the increasing tensions, it's almost like, hey, we had a win here with IRA and we won. We overperformed in the midterms. Let's double down. So now what we're looking at is this thing called the Smart Pricing Act, which has been led by Amy Klobuchar. That moves 9 and 13 down to year 5. How bad would that be for your members? Oh, that would be terrible. That would really be terrible. We need to continue to make the case that nine should become 13. Yeah, um, not, and, not uh, five. And not five. So, but yeah, that would, be, that would be terrible. There has been some pushback even from, from both sides yeah. on, on the Smart Pricing Act. So people are going, no, no, we've gone too far. But more importantly, does this just continue to open the Overton window and make this even more feasible, unfortunately? Well, I hope that this, doesn't, that this bill doesn't have a chance. But what I think is worth recognizing is that the problem that people are trying to solve is a legitimate problem to solve, and that is affordable access for patients. Unfortunately, this is not the way to solve that problem, because as we were talking briefly a moment ago, we talked about the out-of-pocket costs. What really matters to patients is how much they have to pay when they go to the pharmacy. Exactly. And can they afford that that out-of-pocket cost when they go to the pharmacy to get the drug that the doctor thinks that they most need? And That is a problem that we need to think about um, how to address. However, if you think about a patient who goes to the pharmacy who has an unaffordable $5,000 copay for their $100,000 drug, if you force the company to cut that price in half and the patient goes to the pharmacy and faces the $5,000 unaffordable copay, you have not solved the problem. You've not solved the real problem that we all agree needs to be addressed. So, What we need to do is we need to start to come to the table with other solutions to address the very real issue of affordable access because we want our drugs to be used by the patients who can most benefit from them. And this gets to, you know, discussions of other distortions in the system that we may want to, we may want to talk about too. But, um, but we really, we need to think about how are we actually solving the real problem here, not the illusory problem that appears to be the target. If you speak to legislators who actually voted on and helped write the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit. You know, they said, look, we wanted patients to have skin in the game. We wanted to have an out-of-pocket. I mean, let's be honest, Lipitor was 1500 bucks a year. Now we're looking at some very targeted therapeutics that have recently come out for very targeted gene therapies for hemophilia where that are list prices over $3 million. Now, obviously, no one will pay that $3 million. They'll be heavily discounted. But the fact is, we're still talking seven figures. Essentially, you've got a benefit system that was designed for a different economic world. Yeah, and I think the other thing I, I, I kind of object to implicitly in, in, in that is the idea that a patient should have, quote, skin in the game in making a decision about what drug to take. I don't think we want people to choose a chemotherapy agent based on the copay. I don't think we want people to choose whether they should take the antibiotic that they're 
doctor recommends versus another antibiotic. That just happens on, to be on the formulary. Yeah, yeah, based on the copay. I think we want patients to be able to take the drugs that their doctors think are the most appropriate drugs for them. And we don't want to introduce a distorting incentive, which has nothing to do with the value of the drug to that particular patient. But that's what we have. Yeah. And one could argue that the skin in the game is the payment of the insurance premium or the Medicare yeah, Advantage correct, premium. Correct. You know, yeah. th- they're already paying that. And yeah. then they're trusting that the system and the PBMs and everything is working to their benefit. Now, right. this leads to some of the other distortions I think you want to touch on, which is the current problem we're hearing with the PBM system. Now, we know for a fact when we were working on the HR3 where we were stumbling onto gross to net margins of 55, 60% in insulin. And for those of you who are not familiar with this jingo, I just threw out the pharmaceutical benefit managers are middlemen negotiators that sit between the consumer and the manufacturer, and they're supposed to negotiate the insurance. But increasingly what it looks like is they're giving preferential placement for those products that kick back the largest margin to them. So there seems to be just some distortions in the market. A study in JAMA from last year found that 70 cents on the dollar was not going to the originator, to the company. 70 cents was going to the wholesaler, the PBM, and everyone else. Yet, the industry makes a very good black hat wearing villain tying the woman to the railroad tracks and, you know, snidely whiplash looking like the villain. That's unfortunate. The PBMs are starting to get a lot of heat, but it's still a very opaque system. What do you think needs to happen there? First, I agree with you very much. I think it's very complex, and that's part of the challenge in, in sort of peeling back the onion and to, to try to figure out what, what solution makes sense. But very much agree with what you're saying about distortions in the market and distortions that influence the specific drugs that are available to patients because of being on a formulary, because right. of what the PBM is getting. I think there are a number of things that we could do. First of all, transparency is important. I think transparency is a necessary first step, but not sufficient. A transparency, and there's a lot that's going on right now on the Hill, as you know, debates around getting to greater transparency. And I think I do feel there's bipartisan interest in that as people begin to understand the economics exactly as you've described them. That's step one. Then we need to think about how to more equitably incentivize people who are in the system. You know, can we de-link the rewards that the PBMs get from the price of a drug. So they're not incented to put the highest priced drug on the formulary so that they're incented to put maybe every drug on a formulary with different provisions, right? So, so that we don't have to we don't have to specifically reward putting certain drugs on the formulary other than, uh, as opposed to others. We can look at rebates um, and whether those are shared with the patient or how the how the rebate to the PBM eventually gets reflected back to the patient. I've also seen actually in that JAMA article, they were talking about interesting ideas around uh, making PBMs in a way fiduciaries for the patient, right? Who right. who are they responsible to? Because they're not necessarily operating currently toward the benefit of the patient. So these are the kinds of things that we need to explore. We need to think through. It is complex, but I think we need to begin with transparency. And then we need to start to think about what else can we do to align incentives with the true healthcare needs of patients. The industry is not completely without criticism here because the fact is this has been a mutually, in some cases, a mutually beneficial relationship. So there is going to have to be a cultural change there from the business side as well. And this will have impacts. There are volume agreements and things like that where we will give you a bigger margin if we can have 70, 80% of the volume. And that is a reality, unfortunately. So that system does need to change and that will require compromise on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I agree. I think as we work through these very 
complex, this very complex set of issues from multiple perspectives. I think we need to keep a couple of things in mind. As I said, we need to think about balancing uh, the support for innovation with the affordable access, and we need to think about aligning incentives such that they benefit the patients. Because the problem now is, if you look at it, everybody's acting in their own economic best interest. Which Every, all, is everyone's what acting you'd logically. Yeah, yes. that's what you'd expect, right? And, and people will continue to do that. Well, obviously, part of the problem as well, a lot of the PBMs now are vertically integrated with the pharmaceutical companies yeah. themselves, and they've been bought out by private equity. So there's yeah. not even disclosure. You can't even go to the SEC reports in the 10K and get any clarity. It's just a black box you're staring at. Yes, into. yeah, yeah. So it seems like now we know that there's some antitrust legislation as well, but it'll be interesting to see where this shakes out. Yeah, and this. It's going to take time. It's going to take some experimentation. It's going to take, as we said earlier, it's going to it's going to take legislation, which over time has also changed and improved as we live with um, the results of what we think might be a good idea in one age and in another recognize unintended consequences. It's such a complex environment that we need to, I think, acknowledge that as well. So in January of this year, as if you haven't had enough trouble, a couple senators led by Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts requested that Health and Human Services exercise something called marching rights, which allows the federal government to take back patents that were created in partnership with the NIH and federal funding. From our own research, we know that 80-90% of all patents involved in commercial products are actually funded and created by the commercial entity. It's only you know less than 10% that actually come from academia, but that's an important 10%. What are marching rights from your perspective? Well, so I think it, it gets to questions of uncertainty. Again, an issue of how a company, as they make their investment decisions, thinks about risk. Sure. There have been a number of attempts over the years to try to get at what some might consider, quote, reasonable pricing or price controls, marching rights, et cetera. These are all ways of trying to recapture for, in this case, the government value after the value has been created by the company. To the extent that these provisions are in place at the time that an investment decision is being made, the possibility that the government could step in with these kind of margin rights or reasonable pricing or however you want to define it is something that figures very strongly as a consideration of risk. So if you're talking about working with, for example, a government lab, knowing that if any technology comes out of that collaboration, it might be subject to these margin rights, you might decide not to work with that lab. In fact, we have we did this experiment. I believe it was in the 1980s. There were provisions that were added to the language of Kratos. Reasonable pricing clauses. Yes. Yes, that were added to those uh, to those agreements. And if you look at the number of Kratos during that time, they went significantly down as a result of that language. And under the Clinton administration, that policy was reversed yeah. and Kratos came back. So we've done the experiment, and we've we've already shown that provisions that try to capture this through that type of language, margin rights or reasonable pricing, anything that, that basically tries to kind of capture that, take that value back. We know that that doesn't work. We know that that discourages collaboration, and we've seen that. And Secretary Varner himself pointed out that when they withdrew the reasonable pricing clause from the Kratos, they had an 800% increase in collaboration within three years. There you go. So, And they knew from studies and research they had done that people were saying, we're, no, we're not going to collaborate anymore because why? It yeah. doesn't make sense. And yeah, yeah they just nosedived. They absolutely crashed. Yeah, so we know, like I said, we did that experiment. We know the impact. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like we care about evidence yeah. much about these things anymore, unfortunately. Final question for you here. 
we have an election coming up in 18 months. What do you think happens to the IRA? Is it here forever? Does it become the smart act or does something else occur? What, where do you think the music's heading? What do you think happens? So I think what we're going to do is to improve it. I think we'll be, I, I mean, I'm an optimist as far as that is concerned. I don't know what's going to happen politically. Uh, you know, we've got obviously the House, the Senate, the presidency are all going to be, um, are all going to be up in, in effect. But regardless, I think that as people understand the impact of the current law, I think we're going to be able to convince them that improvements need to be made to um, improve the incentives for innovation. And I've heard people on both sides of the aisle open to consideration. And so I think we need to we need to start marching down that hallway and seeing what we can get done. Rachel King, CEO of Bio. Rachel, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. And thank you, too. I've really enjoyed it also. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.